I told my mother at age eight that I was going to move to Paris. Uh, I have <laughs> okay. absolutely no affiliation, no French blood, and my parents did not speak French, nor had they ever been to France before I moved here. So I don't know where this came from. Perhaps a past life. At the age of eight, maybe it was Petit Le Pew. Possibly, yes. <laughs> Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. Burgundy wine is renowned around the world as some of the best French wine there is. From some of the most expensive wines you can buy to everyday dinner wines, there's a fabulous world of delicious wine to drink. But Burgundy is also known for its food. So how does wine and food traditions mesh? To dive further into wines from Burgundy, I'm joined today by Global Wine Advisor and from his Instagram account, I can see a fabulous French foodie, Preston Moore. Preston, welcome to Fabulously Delicious. Hello, thanks for having me. Preston, before we get into all things wine, I want to introduce you a little bit to our audience and uh, talk about life before wine and before you moved to France. You actually studied at university history and French studies. What was the attraction of France and, and French studies for a young American? I told my mother at age eight that I was going to move to Paris. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have absolutely no affiliation, no French blood, and my parents did not speak French, nor had they ever been to France before I moved here. So I don't know where this came from, perhaps a past life. Right. Uh, but it was always something that had interested me. My brother studied French in, in school, and so I thought he was cool and decided to study French as well. And then just the rest is history, as we say, kind of built my life around that love of French culture and language and art, and uh, and then wine and food came a bit later. At the age of eight, maybe it was Petit Le Pew. Possibly, yes. <laughs> To go that leap to actually come to France, uh, especially if you've had no affiliation, I thought you'd tell me that maybe your dad was from France or or mum was, etc. But uh, no. So, what was that experience like then, as as an American that's uh, you know that you've just studied French at school to actually come to France? I think in the beginning it was quite uh, scary, but I was young and it was just exciting. You know, I think the excitement value outweighed the risk at that point you know when you're in your early 20s you're kind of like let's just take a chance and uh, went for it and uh, never really looked back and just felt very comfortable and very happy here and uh, certainly a lot of that came from this love for the food and the wine that I discovered you know once I got over here I'd always been interested in cooking my mother taught cooking uh, it was a home economics teacher what we call in America someone who teaches young people how to cook and how to run a household, essentially, uh, which is actually a dying industry or dying uh, kind of job, I should say, in the U.S. Um, unfortunately, it's not required anymore in most schools. But that was her career. And so I grew up around food and cooking and baking. And, uh, and that's probably where it started. Uh, and then, you know, got here and really decided that I wanted to focus more on, you know, the French side of, of food and cooking and, and then wine. And had you been before, like on a holiday or anything like that? I came here once uh, right after I finished high school and uh, did, you know, that typical kind of grand tour that most Americans do their first trip to Europe, which is like one or two nights in each location with a backpack and staying in 
crappy hostels and, you know, trying to live on $5 a day, et cetera. <laughs> uh, and, but I came in and out of Paris on that trip. And that was the, my, by far the, my favorite place we had visited on that trip. Um, so just decided this was really where I wanted to be. And then uh, did a study abroad program through my university. But I was one of the only students, I think the only one actually, to really stay afterwards uh, and found jobs and always kind of figured out a way to make ends meet and um, and ended up you know staying for now over you know 18 years so that first time it really would have been a major culture shock i mean there's no palace of versailles unless it's built by some billionaire trump trump towers <laughs> we have trump we have trump towers and you know that's that's as good as we've got <laughs> Mm, yeah, not quite the same as the Louvre, really. Uh, it really would have been a culture shock for you. What were some of the experiences that you remember from your first sort of foray of living in Paris? My first experiences living here were really shaped by this host family that I lived with. So I was placed actually in a French family in the 17th arrondissement in Paris, and they were this grand kind of um kind of aristocratic family uh that had this huge apartment filled with antiques and you know like uh, high ceilings and gorgeous you know moldings and everything in every room uh and they had a country house which was actually more of a chateau and uh but they were really down to earth very simple people and really lovely and you know that's how i learned french actually because they didn't really speak english and or maybe they did they just certainly didn't lead on me lead me on to believe they spoke english at all so i had to speak french and i think back then i know it wasn't that long ago but you really did need to speak french here and i see younger people now coming for work or for internships or for studies and they really don't have to learn french because the younger generations of, of French people now are speaking English and are more well-traveled, whereas I feel like it was such an important part for, to learn the French language, and that's what allowed me to go and start talking to winemakers and bakers and butchers and people that were doing cool things that I wouldn't have been able to really understand otherwise if I didn't speak the language. What's your first food memory of your time in Paris? This is actually... <laughs> Something I vividly remember, and I think it's so interesting. But when when I got to this host family's house, you know, I arrived at the airport, and I, you know, we this was pre cell phone, so this was like you you got you sent. I think I I remember calling the family the day before I flew out of the U.S. and saying I arrive at this time, and they're like, okay, well we'll pick you up at this spot, and it was. A random street corner in Paris. So I flew in, had to figure out how to get there, and then meet them, someone I'd never met, at the street corner. Uh, and it, it all worked okay. I remember the my host mother asking me, well, what color shirt will you be wearing? You know, and nowadays, we wouldn't even think about this. It would be like, just pick up your phone and call or text and say, I'm here. So I arrived, they brought me to their house, and of course, had been on the overnight flight and was... Um, hungry and my the, the the host mother made this quiche lorraine to have as lunch and i was like i had had quiche before obviously and probably quiche lorraine but it just tasted so good uh, and it just the ingredients so simple and you look at a quiche lorraine recipe and of course there's people who say there's cheese in it and some who say that don't doesn't have cheese or whatever whatever version you really think is the real thing either way it's fine it's just pure love i mean how can you go wrong with 
bacon, cream, eggs, maybe cheese, and a butter pastry. I mean, it's just everything I love. So, Ham and cheese pie is what we call it in Australia. The Back in the States is where you developed your interest for wine, though, from my understanding. And it came from uh, starting from a college friend that sort of, you say, introduced you to, pair, to pairing wines with food. Yes. How did that come about? Well, so he, this is one of my very best friends of all time, and we grew up together, and and uh, he was studying to become a chef. And I was in university, he was in culinary school, we were sharing a flat, and uh, he would come home with all kinds of food he had prepared and new ideas for recipes, and I really, wine wasn't on my radar. In fact, as an Australian, I'm sure you'll enjoy this, but I say that uh, Yellowtail Shiraz in Magnums got me through university. Oh, no, Preston. <laughs> uh, this is a wine that every, every, every American knows. This is like what most people, it's like it was $8, I think, US dollars at the time for a Magnum. And that's what I was drinking. Uh, if it wasn't beer or cocktails or straight vodka or whatever, you know, in the time you drink when you're in university. And he was coming home with these California wines or French wines. And, and we were going out together and then shopping. And he would show me how to cook a dish. And we'd have it with the wine. And it was just life-changing. And I think that that's the moment I realized that I wanted to be interested in wine. I thought... Younger in my, I say in my youth, I thought of becoming a chef. And I think it was that experience of living with him, coming home from culinary school and smelling his clothes and his everything about his body and becoming, okay, actually, no, I don't think I want to yeah. be, I don't think I want to be a chef. It's not that glamorous, you know, seeing his like work clogs that he was wearing um, covered in splattered grease and all this. And it's not very glamorous as we know. Um, so I decided, okay, I can be a home cook, but actually get in to food through the wine door. And so you come to Paris uh, after you complete university, is that right? And you started in hospitality uh, in Paris. I did. What was that? Why was that? Was that just by fate? Well, yes, it was. In fact, my, my parents had rented a flat uh, when they came to visit me here. And uh, it's a, a flat that was owned uh, by a Canadian woman with whom I'm still very close, Gail Boisclair, mm -hmm. as I believe yep, you yes. know. Um, know Gail, yes. You know her. And uh, she's kind of my, my Paris godmother, I would say, in many ways, and is um, a very important part of why I'm here, in fact, still today. And she was, uh, she had started, she just started her own business called uh, Perfectly Paris and specialized in Montmartre, uh, furnished apartment rentals. And so I met her that way. And after I uh, st finished studying, I was looking to stay on a bit extra and uh, talk to her and she offered me some work. And that's essentially kind of how I got my foot in the door and then ended up becoming a full-time employee for her for a number of years. She was able to uh, sponsor me as a as a official resident and or as a you know work employee for her and and then uh, it was through that contact in the hospitality world with all of these tourists, people coming from Australia, America, Canada, etc., that were interested. I saw people coming. 
I was checking them into the apartments and they'd ask me right away, well, where's your favorite restaurant? Where should we go? Like, tell me about, you know, and, and that's when I started to do research and really start understanding there was a huge market for this knowledge of food and wine, especially catering towards Anglophones or people here that didn't necessarily speak the language and couldn't just come and walk into a restaurant and, you know, understand what was happening. So knowing Gail, it's uh, not the only coincidence that we both, the things that we have in common, we both in 2013 uh, started uh, tourism businesses. So I started Queenie's Food Tours in Melbourne, which was my walking tour business after MasterChef. Uh, but you started um, Paris by Glass, which was a Great success. You've had amazing reviews uh, for that whole um, the time that you were doing your tours there. What was that experience like showing people around Paris through wine, which is sort of a different way to do it? Yes. Yeah. So Paris by the Glasses uh, was my company that uh, essentially brought people into the behind the scenes, I would say, of of food and wine here in Paris, but also further afield. And it was really um, something that I thought, you know, would, um, as I said, just bring people closer to the cities and what that they were visiting. I think it's easy to come anywhere as a tourist, have great meals, have great food, and then leave and kind of forget it. Uh, and in, even in a city like Paris, I mean, there's so much bad food here. And so I almost felt bad and responsible for that and felt like, okay, I want to be able to empower these people to understand and go home with a bit of knowledge about wines and be able to put that into use when they got home. So I was doing a lot of tastings and tours. I was teaching um, wine classes at a cooking school, etc. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Met a lot of cool people, have lots of invitations I still need to go see, especially from the Australians. Everyone was always like, come on over, like <laughs> stay in my, I yeah, I still have never been, but I need to get out my, my Rolodex one day and just like go pop pop in to visit all these cool people I've met from all over the world and what I was doing. So what is your favorite wine bar in Paris then? Oh gosh, I haven't been to a wine bar in over a year and a oh, half. Right. That's, that's right. A, we, that's we do have to, yeah, I didn't think of that uh, when I was thinking about the questions of what was yeah, your favorite wine right. bar in Paris? Um, so I, I have to say it's probably my neighborhood wine bar, which is called L'Ebeniste du Vin in the 17th in the Batignol neighborhood. Not a lot of people come up here, but it happens to be where I live. I am somebody who generally doesn't like going to the most trendy natural wine bars in Paris. Like that's all you read about. First of all, what a lot of listeners probably don't realize is Paris is huge. It's intricate. It's, it's complex. We've got everything we need in every neighborhood. So you don't need to cross the city to go to a wine bar. And so where all the kind of quote unquote cool things are happening is just kind of far from where I live. And so I don't necessarily go make a trip, especially to go drink a glass of natural wine at, you know, some bar in the 11th or the 2nd or whatnot. So I like to stay closer to home. Uh, and yeah, definitely the last year, it's mostly been home in home drinking. But yeah, that's my favorite little place. And they have a great selection. And uh, I've got to know the, the owners quite well. And they're just a lovely, you know, dynamic young um, young people running this great bar and uh, just, yeah, it's always a nice welcoming place. They've got a little dog that 
lives there, you know, their dog is always there and it's quite fun to go and hang out with her. Paris is uh, amazing at the moment. Have you been out and about? I have, yeah. I haven't actually eaten out in, an, in a terrace yet, though. I'm planning to do that this weekend. I've been kind of letting that. I'm not a big crowd person. Right, yes. <laughs> the older I get, I'm like, I need a reservation. I need to know when I'm going to the restaurant and get there on time and the table needs to be ready. I don't like waiting in line for food. And I don't like I don't like sitting on the roadside either and having the motorcycles, you know, 10 centimeters away from my face while I'm eating my steak tartare. Uh, but I am planning on going out this weekend. But I have, I've been walking around a lot. And um, yeah, it's always it's always nice to just see the city back in in having that energy back in the city. But we do miss the tourists. I think that I wasn't I didn't miss them last year. But this year I've had that. Feeling, I feel like the city has become a little bit less cosmopolitan because there aren't all those different cultures and people here. And uh, that's what Paris is all about. So I know that they'll come back and, and I'm sure six months we'll be ready to, you know, um, have them go back home anyway. But um, but now is the time to go to the Louvre and to go do all those things you want to do without tourists and get reservations and some restaurants that you usually can't get either. Getting into wines and in particular Burgundy wines, uh, for us foodies, wine novices, I just like to cook and drink uh, a nice wine. I'm not an expert in wine at all. What uh, makes Burgundy wine stand out from all of the other wines in France? Great question. I think that Burgundy is all about food finesse and elegance and there are only two main grape varieties in burgundy pinot noir for reds and chardonnay for whites so they're perhaps you know the two most famous grapes throughout the world now but they come they both originate from burgundy and they both excel in that climate and soil there to me it's the only place in the world for these grapes i mean yes i've had great chardonnays from other places and great pinot noirs from other places but if you really want to try the unadulterated version of these grapes that have now become world famous it's all about burgundy so there's that and i think that burgundy is also extremely complex it's kind of a bit of an insider's world because you really need to understand it before you can just enjoy the wines. You know, they're delicious, but they're not exactly the most, um, especially the reds, are not exactly always easy to like. I think that uh, if you give them to somebody from Australia or America, they might think, ah, oh, this is kind of thin and weak and light in color. What's wrong with it? Uh, whereas that's what I like about them is they're light, they're digestible, they're they're elegant and they're not going to knock your socks off like you know they're not overly alcoholic they're very much about they're just in line with what i like in wines which is mineral and dry and crisp whites and lovely and fresh soft reds without too much alcohol right and so we hear the word mentioned often by wine um, experts and also food producers in France, the word terroir, and excuse my French because uh, I speak French with an Australian accent. For those that don't know, what does the word terroir mean? And then also, what is the terroir of Burgundy? Terroir really is a very French concept. And I always say it is the taste of a place. It's the taste of wherever that product comes from. So whether it's wine or butter or cream or cheese or meat, what it is is it's the accumulation of the natural factors that influence the way that something tastes. 
And there's also one thing that's not really necessarily natural that influences terroir, and that's tradition. And most people don't think about that, and that terroir is actually driven by the traditions of the people that have been living in these places for a very long time. But it's, I would say, 90% natural and 10% human-influenced. Um, and so terroir is, if you think about it this way, if we grow Chardonnay in Burgundy, and we grow that same grape in California, and we grow the other same grape in Australia, those, that same variety will taste three different ways because of the terroir, because each of those three locations has a different climate, a different soil, different exposition to the sun, different wind patterns, different growing cycles, etc. And that's really what terroir is. And Burgundy, I would say the terroir there is far too complex to even sum up in, you know, one book. Um, you've, you have to study it for your entire life to understand it. Because of ge geology over hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, it's, it's created a very complex terroir with microclimates and different types of soil underneath um, the vines. And that's really what makes Burgundy somewhere you can truly spend your entire kind of drinking career studying and understanding and then realize, hey, actually, I've only just scratched the surface of this place. It wouldn't be a bad career, though. No. Drinking your way through trying to understand the terror of uh, Burgundy. Sounds good to me. <laughs> An another term uh, for us novices that um, we would come across, and this is, again, something from my understanding that's also about food and wine, is AOC. And apparently Burgundy has over or has about 100 vineyards, AOC vineyards, which is quite high. What is AOC and why does Burgundy have so many? AOC stands for Appellation d'Origine Contrôlé, which means controlled place of origin. So it means that an AOC is a designated demarcated place on the map that can produce a certain wine that can be labeled in a certain fashion. So a good example of this would be, uh, for example, maybe outside of the wine world, it's a bit easier to think about this using a cheese, uh, something like um, let me come up with a good example of one that everybody will understand, like a Roquefort. Everyone's probably had Roquefort cheese. It's, this is the same rule that applies to our wines in France. We have it for cheeses as well. And that Roquefort has to come from a specific place. It has to come from sheep's milk. It has to be aged a certain amount of time. It has to really abide by a whole list of rules and regulations to be called Roquefort. So Roquefort is not only a name of a cheese, but it's a name of a way of making cheese. It's almost like a brand where you can come to expect a certain quality from any Roquefort, even though there are many producers of Roquefort, they all follow those same rules. And so that it's a guarantee of quality and of origin and of provenance and really of of really of, of go back to that quality. And so all of those AOCs in Burgundy are just that, is they're saying, we've only got these two grape varieties to work with, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but in these 100 plus AOCs, these wine grapes will express themselves differently to the point of where we need to give ourselves different names from our neighbors to differentiate ourselves. Beaujolais wine is also uh, a wine from the Burgundy region, and it's 
famous in France as a table wine, but it's all, everybody gets excited at the Beaujolais time of the year when it's announced. What is Beaujolais wine for us Australian Americans that are coming to France that don't know anything about wine? Yes, Beaujolais is the southernmost part of Burgundy and they grow grape, they're called Gamay. G-A-M-A-Y. And actually, Gamay was the main red grape variety in all of Burgundy up until the 1500s. And uh, the Duke of Burgundy, uh, Philip the Bold at the time, he found that Gamay was quite harsh and was kind of a bastard grape variety. And so he banished it from his dukedom and he replanted everything with Pinot Noir. And that's how Pinot Noir came to Burgundy. Well, it's from Burgundy originally, but that's how it became so widely planted. And it was, Gamay was really pushed further south to what's now the Beaujolais region, where it thrives really well. It's a very fruity, very easy to like red grape variety. But in years past, this grape was used primarily for everyday drinking table wines, like you've said. And there are some excellent producers now using this grape and really making more terroir-driven, excellent quality style wines um, in, in Beaujolais. And the Beaujolais Nouveau is what you hear about most, and that's in November. They release the wine from that year's harvest, which is quite uncommon. Most of the time when we make wine, you harvest the grapes in if we're in the Northern Hemisphere, you're going to harvest in September. And then you're, well, I guess it's the same for the Southern Hemisphere, but it's just different cycle. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, here it would be September, you harvest for most parts. And then the uh, grapes will be, you know, crushed and made into wine and then bottled and sold probably the next year in the springtime. Sometimes for higher quality wines, Burgundies, Bordeaux, et cetera, they're going to age, you know, a year or two more beyond that. Uh, and what they do in Beaujolais is they simply make, with Beaujolais Nouveau, they make that wine. It only stays about a month or two in tanks, and then it's bottled and sold. It's a way of essentially selling what they've just finished making, whereas winemakers down there were struggling to... They had no money, so they had no way to really live between the harvest and the following year. So they decided to start commercializing those wines earlier. They're generally the least serious and the least interesting in terms of quality Beaujolais wines. Uh, but they're still fun and nice and easy to drink. And yeah, there's a number of other very good Beaujolais that do are made just like a Burgundy or other other wines. There's a lot of fa fanfare around it that in November when they're being released and you yeah. know, everyone's got their signs out that they're selling Beaujolais wine here, etc. So uh, it's, it's more a, of a party now. It's just a yeah. big party. I've done tours of uh, Dijon and Lyon, and in researching them, I came across this fabulous abbey, and um, it had a wonderful restaurant in the cellars. They did a specialty of Boeuf Bourguignon, uh, as part of a menu. And the entree starter, and I'm actually known for my birth bourguignon, um, on Cooking Fabulously. It's one of my most popular episodes, if anyone wants to head over to YouTube to watch that. Uh, but um, my French neighbours have all said that my birth bourguignon is the best they've ever had, which is a high compliment from them. Indeed. The, what I found fabulous at this restaurant was that the starter, or entree as we call it in um, in Australia, uh, but starter in, in the US, is um, a poached egg served in the source of the Bourguignon. What other uh, specialties from the Burg Burgundy region are there revolved around food and wine? Yeah, there are so many. 
what you've just spoke about, oeuf moret, is so delicious. If you've never, if you've never tried making it, it, you should all try. And you can kind of do a cheat. You don't necessarily need to make a boeuf bourguignon, but you just need to have some good beef stock or something else. And and there's lots of recipes online. But yeah, it's delicious. Um, it's a it, Burgundy is actually a very cool region, very cold in the winter, and so the food there is tends to be very hearty. So dishes like boeuf bourguignon, the stews and these long cooked dishes are very traditional and common. Uh, there's a, another starter entree that's um, quite famous there, which is a, uh, it's called a jambon persillé, which is a ham. It's like a pressed ham that's set in gelatin with parsley and it's very old-fashioned and French you know it's kind of out of fashion the young people don't like this type of food anymore uh, but it's absolutely delicious served cold usually with a salad before before dinner um, so that's another very common one um, there's some great cheeses from Burgundy as well uh, typically they are traditionally they're washed rind or strong cheeses that have been washed with alcohol as a byproduct of winemaking they had you know, grappa, what essentially is grappa, which we call in French mar, M-A-R-C. Uh, and that was an offshoot of, of making wine. They could re-ferment the skins um, of that those grapes they had uh, just made into wine, and they could then make a, an alcohol. And they used that alcohol to wash the rinds of the cheeses. And in doing so, it would protect the cheese, but also would add an extra layer of flavor. So cheeses like Epoisse, which is probably the most famous from Burgundy, uh, that's a washed rind cheese. It's washed with that that burgundy um, liqueur, that uh, like uh, spirit. You know, it's a it's a hard alcohol that they wash the cheese with. And there's that. Yeah, there's just so many things, um, and it's a great place to eat. I mean, Lyon has its uh, bouchons. Uh, you get the cassis. You've got the mustard from Dijon. I mean, really, you could just stay in the region uh, of Burgundy and. Um, and spend a lifetime exploring French food and wine just there. You sure could. And you're right between the Auvergne, which is to the west of Burgundy, which is, has this incredible volcanic soil that grows a lot of different produce, things like the lentils from Puy, etc. It's not very far away. Then in, over to the right on the east side of Burgundy, you have the Alps, so you have all these gorgeous mountain cheeses only an hour away. You're, you can be in the Jura where they make Comte. And then driving a couple hours south, you're already transform, transforming into the more Mediterranean climate. And you can get all, everything you need from the south, all the peppers and onions and tomatoes. And so you're right in the heart and you're really in a great spot to get get good produce. Getting back to the initial inspiration of your flatmate and food and wine pairings, um, obviously you're a bit more educated in wine now. What tips can you give the listeners to how to pair food, uh, wine or specifically Burgundy wine, but any wines really with food? I think that you should first just forget about all this intimidation of food and wine pairing. If you want to drink a red wine with a fish or white wine with meat, I don't care. Just drink wine is what I have to say. Drink good food, eat good, eat good food and drink good wine. Uh, and that's it. Um, but I would say the, the quickest thing to think about is pair like with like, match the intensity of the food with the intensity of the wine. So lighter, more delicate foods should go with more delicate wines and fuller, richer, heavier dishes should go with heavier full-bodied wines and that's it just like with like and that's the best way to go but don't overthink it you know a wine like you've mentioned uh, Beaujolais for example will go with almost any dish 
it's a, it's a perfect wine for anything you're eating. It's a good aperitif even before dinner. It's a good food wine with, um, you know, meats or even with those fish. And I mean, you can drill, literally drink a lot of burgundy reds with just about anything. Is it different to pairing wine to drink than it is to cooking with wine? Uh, I think that the ultimate rule is you should never cook with a wine that you wouldn't drink. Mm -hmm. That being said, I don't cook with 30 or 40 euro bottles of wine. I'll always have a cheaper wine that I wouldn't mind drinking, that I usually do drink while I'm cooking. Uh, and I cook a lot more, I would say, with white wine than I do with red wine. Uh, and that's just because it tends to go better in, you know, in what I cook and in sauces and stuff and deglazing pans and stuff. Um, I also recommend for people, if you're interested in cooking with wine, but you don't have any wine around, I always have white vermouth in the fridge, uh, which is so great and it keeps forever. And then you, you always have something to add into a sauce or, you know, to deglaze a pan. And it's actually based on wine. You know, what ver vermouth is wine-based um, and has aromatics and things. And it's a great thing to have around. You can also freeze wine if you have leftover wine, which is never a problem in my house. But you can freeze it into ice cube trays and have those in your freezer and have those just pop in the, the pan when you're finished. Uh, but I think the rules are the same. Just pair like with like. You know, don't want a wine to cook with that's too overpowering. I think it, it's, it'd be interesting to, to know, Andrew, do you use a Burgundy wine in your Boeuf Bourguignon? Yes. Well, when I'm in France, I do, yes. I okay. specifically will go and find one. Uh, just, I don't know, there's something romantic uh, in the notion about that. I was just curious, yeah, because I think Burgundy, unfortunately, has become a very expensive wine too, and it does... Play if you're going to make a Boeuf Bourguignon and you're using an entire bottle or almost a whole yes. bottle. I mean that can be quite costly. Mm. Uh, and so I was just curious <laughs> if you were it's using not a, cheap a Burgundy. Experience coming to dinner at my yes. house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I listened to you on another podcast and I got some great tips from you about the price of wine and what should be looking for price wise if you just want a, a nice wine to you know to have enjoy with your meal. Yeah, you don't need to spend a fortune. And I think that um, popular culture kind of tells people or convinces people that you do need to spend a lot of money to have a good wine, but it's not the case. There's some great winemakers doing excellent wines that are everyday drinking wines for 8, 10, 12 euros a bottle. Here in France, I'm speaking of, of course, these are always more expensive in America or in Australia, etc., unfortunately. But here in France, I would say spend... Yes, definitely more than eight or 10 euros if you can, uh, because three euros of that wine bottle's price, regardless, is just the cork, the bottle, the shipping, the label, the tax, etc. So if you are buying a three or four euro bottles, a bottle of wine, what you're getting inside is 20 or 30 cents worth. You know, it's very, very low. Uh, whereas if you spend eight, 10, 12 euros, you're already tripling your quantity or your quality level of, of wine in that bottle. Um, I think for me, I, as the older I've gotten, the, the less I've start, I drink now actually. And so I prefer to spend a bit more on a nice bottle and have, and I don't drink wine every day anymore, whereas I, you probably used to in my youth. And I would rather spend a little bit more on the weekends or leading up to the weekend and have a nicer bottle on Thursday and Friday. And really with restaurants having been closed for a year and a half too, it's, it's 
considerable to well to go out to a restaurant and spend when you do buy a 50 or 60 euro bottle of wine at a restaurant you know that restaurant probably paid eight or ten euros cost price for that wine so you should spend 50 or 60 on a bottle at home and you're you're just having a you know grand bottle um if i come to france from overseas and I'm visiting and doing wine tastings and things like that. Should I be buying a whole lot of wine and getting it shipped back home? Or should I just be learning from that experience and buy and going back home and buying the wine from my local retailer? I think that's a great question. I would recommend always look going to your local retailer, regardless of where you are, and buying local wines as well. I drink French wine because I'm in France. If I were living in Germany, I'd drink German wines, or if I was in Spain, of course, yes, you could treat yourself to a bottle of champagne or something from more exotic from somewhere else. But I don't drink Australian wines or American wines here because, well, they have to be sh shipped over here. It has a carbon footprint. I also, I think that local foods go better with the local wines too. So if you're back in Australia, you should drink Australian wine with Australian meat and Australian vegetables and everything that you can get locally. That's my opinion. Uh, my view but definitely french wine is my favorite so i think even if i ever did leave france i would still buy french wine in some capacity but i wouldn't recommend shipping wine home um certainly not for the australians listening because you have these customs duties that are quite high if you do bring wine back or ship it back um, but um, other countries like america we can ship very easily we ship for example chateau de pomar where i work we ship our wines all throughout the world in america it's very easy to get our wines shipped um, and there's no customs duties or taxes or anything um, so i think i would yeah prioritize local merchants but treat yourself to something nice and imported every once in a while when you're trying wines as a as a non-expert like myself um, it can be a bit intimidating this whole sort of tasting process and there's a bucket there that I'm supposed to spit it in, which I don't really like the idea of. I prefer to drink the wine. What what am I supposed to be doing there when I'm tasting wines? There's all this sort of slurpiness going and some people sort of, you know, suck up air into it. What am I supposed to be doing and what am I supposed to be looking for? When you're tasting a wine, the first thing you should ask yourself is, do I like this wine? <laughs> and that's really all you need to know. Uh, but there are all these things we go through as wine professionals and people at home can do this as well. It's just you look, you smell, and then you taste. Those are the three steps. We eat with our eyes or we drink with our eyes as well. So the, the visual effects of the wine will actually impact the way it feels in your, on your palate, the color, the, you know, the, the clarity, the, um, the depth of color, et cetera. Um, smelling to me is probably the most fun or the most, the thing that most people at home can start practicing with is thinking about families of aromas that they smell. You don't have to pick out, you know, all these random aromas that people probably have never smelled in their lives. But just think about families of aromas and it's going to help you identify maybe what you like. What, okay, this wine smells like blackberry. Oh, okay, I liked it. So, I can use that as an adjective when I go to a shop or go to a restaurant and I can say, oh, I had this great wine. I don't know where it was from, but it had this kind of like blackberry and smoky note. It was very dark in color and it had this nicely spiced finish, you know, and that's something anybody can say. And after just kind of learning those adjectives, then they can put those things into practice and, and taste and drink better. 
wherever they go. Getting back to the traditions around Burgundy wine, there's a place called the Bourne Hospice uh, in Bourne, and it has its own wine that it auctions off. Can you tell us about that? Indeed. Hospice de Bourne is an incredibly fascinating place. It's actually an old medieval hospital that was taking care of the sick, the poor, um, sick people in the Burgundy area that had no one to care for them or had no money to, 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 to care for them. And so they, they became one of the largest landowners in Burgundy and they owned a lot of vineyards and the vineyard usually came to them through a donation from a very prominent person. So there were a lot of wealthy merchants and landowners in Burgundy that would donate land in order to to go to heaven, essentially. They were doing this at all in, you know, the whole Catholic um, tradition of basically saying, here you go, here's some money or some land, and um, I want my free pass to, to, to heaven. Uh, and so over time, they became one of the largest landowners. They still own a lot of, of vineyards in Burgundy. And so the tradition became that they would make wine on that land, and they would sell it each year at an auction, a nonprofit auction, and they would take all of the money and, and contribute it towards the hospital. It wasn't until I think the 60s or 70s that that place actually was no was not used as a hospital anymore. They now have a modern uh, building that's somewhere else. Um, you can visit this. But um, my one of my colleagues, her mother-in-law was actually born there in the Hospice de Bonne. And she's still alive. She's like in her 70s. Amazing. So, yeah, it was a working functional hospital up until quite recently. And But this tradition of the of the auction goes on. And it takes place every year in November. Yeah, and it raises money not just for the hospital, but now it raises money for other hospitals from my understanding and other, other historical yeah, I think it's buildings, the... etc. Exactly. Yep. La Fondation des Hôpitaux de France, I think, is who it, it helps now. So the, Our listeners out there are planning their next trip to France and they want to visit uh, a winery in Burgundy. Uh, what, where do you recommend they go and when's the best time to visit? Any time is a good time to come, but I would recommend the summer and the fall. Uh, winter is very nice too, but it can be quite bleak and a bit cold, very a little gray and kind of humid and damp. It's perfectly nice to warm up by the fire with some wine and all that. But if you'd like to come and really spend some time outside, do some cycling or some walking or just, you know, eating out on terraces, etc. Um, summer and spring and fall are really the best times. Uh, the I would say that you're Home base should be in Bonn, which is a city of about 30,000 people. So it's quite sizable, but it's really charming and has an old city center, very manageable. You don't need a car. You can walk everywhere. And from there, you can then use that as your base to head out to some of the vineyards. I do recommend hiring a car or getting a driver or booking a tour or something because it's most of the vineyards are not within walking distance. Um, there are tasting rooms and cellars you can visit right in Bone, but to go actually out into the vineyards, you need either a bike or a car to do so. Uh, and there's lots of great places to visit. And um, Chateau de Pomar, where, where I work, we're open every day of the year and, or almost every day of the year, but every day of the week, I should say. And, uh, we're one of the only places in Burgundy to really welcome visitors. Um, not a lot of, most of the vineyards in Burgundy are owned by small families and you have to call up, make an appointment. You can't just turn up in your car and just do a tasting. Whereas we do that. And there are a couple others like us. Chateau de Merceau is one as well that you can do. We always recommend booking in advance, but, um, it's, it's quite rare in Burgundy. It's not so much of developed wine 
culture like you'd have more in Australia or in California, where you take a, you know, you just make a stop at all these places along the way. Like you've got to plan ahead, book your tastings, go and、um, run it really like a, you know,、um, a schedule.、Um, Can you go to a winery at harvest time, or should you go to a winery at harvest time? Can you help out picking grapes, or is that not really your best tourist experience of visiting a French winery? In fact, it's in France. It's actually against the law for us to allow people to participate or to do work without getting paid in during the harvest. Like a little, maybe an hour or two here of just playing around in the vineyard and then cutting a few bunches, that's fine. But actually, working the harvest, you have to be officially employed, and so for foreigners, it's very hard.、Uh, and so I wouldn't recommend it. And also, it's a time when most winemakers are busy, and so those couple of weeks are incredibly hectic. The cities are very busy as well because you've got all these people coming there. They need to be lodged and fed and everything, and so it's it's not an ideal time.、Uh, I would say just before or just after is really better.、Uh, Preston, you are currently the global wine advisor at Vivant. Yes, right. Did I say、yeah. that correctly? Vivant. What is Vivant? Yes,、yeah, so、Vivant is an offshoot of. Well, it was started by the same founder and CEO of, of Chateau de Pomar, and we are the world's first immersive digital wine tasting platform. And we have our own technology built where you can watch one of our wine advisors on my team from throughout the world, and you can join one of our tastings with our tasting kits. We have.、Uh, Tasting kits that include six individual 100 milliliter bottles of different wines, and you can taste along in real time and learn about regions from around the world. All of our wines are made sustainably as well; they're made in orthog- either organically and/or biodynamically. And、uh, we really hope to educate people on these practices and make people realize that these are winemakers that are really dedicated to making wine that are not only better for You, but also better for the planet, and so we've worked with a, a whole number of, of partners throughout France, and we'll eventually be going to Italy and Spain and further afield in the coming years, and featuring this live streaming educational content、uh, that you can find on our website. And becoming a member allows you to gain access to to that、uh, content that we have and watch these experiences whenever you'd like. Fabulous! And so you ship the kits anywhere around the world? We do, yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Finally, I wanted to ask you about. It's been in the news a lot、um, lately.、Uh, the great frost that happened recently、uh, here in France. What happened, and how's it going to affect、uh, this year's harvest? Yeah, this was a big issue a couple weeks ago now. So, in fact, what happens with the vine is that the very early. Um, stages of the spring is when the bud of the vine actually bursts and opens up. And if we have cold weather in the evening, it can actually the frost can kill that bud on the vine, and then we will have no grapes. So it's a it's a big problem, and it's becoming more prevalent with climate change, where we have these warmer days, and so the buds start to burst, but then it's still very cold at night, and we get the frost in the evening, usually around two or three in the morning, is the coldest time in the vineyard. With organic and biodynamic producers, there's really not a lot can be done other than homeopathic、uh, remedies. But other conventional winemakers, if they have the money and the resources, they can put these、uh, pots. They call the smudge pots, which is essentially a big heater they put in the vineyard. The very rich、uh, winemakers that、uh, want 
to do this, um, actually hire helicopters and the helicopters fly around the vineyards in the middle of the night. And that air movement actually keeps the temperature warmer. Um, that's not done so much in Burgundy, but more in Bordeaux if they have the issue of frost. So there's other ways of doing it. Uh, but um, it is, yeah, it's part of climate change. Unfortunately, it's probably here to stay. It will only get worse as time goes on. Uh, there's really nothing we can do naturally against it. And um, what it does is it limits the production of that year's harvest because those buds then go die and do not produce any fruit that year. So it can dramatically limit the, the yields and the crop of that year's harvest. Is this recent? Has it, when was the last time this happened? It's happened a couple years in the last 10 years. This was quite a bad year for it. Uh, it happens almost every year in just various places, but this year was very widespread. Preston, it's been a fabulous talking to you. Um, you've taught me and I'm sure our listeners so much about Burgundy wines. Uh, we'll have to talk to you again about some of the other regions in the future, I think. I'd love that. That would be great. Where do they find Vivant and where do they find yourself online? You can find us at vivant, V-I-V-A-N-T dot E-C-O, vivant dot E-C-O. And you'll see myself and all of my uh, team members there who provide our experiences. You can uh, watch a couple of them for free. Uh, be happy to provide anyone with more information if um if anyone reaches out to you, Andrew, and you can share my email address with them and be happy to to give more details. So that's where you'll find me and uh, and our website. Great. Thank you, Preston, for joining us on Fabulously Delicious. We're all wind up and uh, ready to drink some Burgundy wine, I think. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What amazingly educational wine experience that was with Preston Moore from Vivant. Preston really gave us some great tips on wine tasting and pairing, and just a fantastic knowledge on Burgundy, Rhine and the region itself. I can't wait to pick his brain another time on all things French wine. If you like this episode of Fabulously Delicious, then please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That way, you'll be sure to get the next fabulous episode. Leave a comment and a five-star review even, maybe, if you're an Apple or Spotify fan. And share Fabulously Delicious with your friends and family, either by the share link, social media, or word of mouth. I love to be shared around. You can also support Fabulously Delicious by becoming a monthly Patreon member, or buy me a croissant. If you just want to do a one-off support, buy buy me a coffee. The links are in the description below. Speaking of Patreon, I'd like to say a big thanks to my current Patreons, Roz, Peter, Matt, Michelle, Juan, Noel, merci beaucoup. Don't forget, you can see me cooking up a storm of French food on Cooking Fabulously on YouTube, great food pics and follow my French life story via Instagram at Andrew Pryor Fabulously. All of these links and the Patreon, buy me a croissant, will be in the show notes. My name is Andrew Pryor and my motto in life is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. So join me next week on Fabulously Delicious for another fabulous French foodie guest and topic. Merci, apiento, bon app. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. 
So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.